out there, rock and rollers. Welcome to episode number 119 of the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock Podcast. Brought to you by me, your host, Mac B, the Wolf. And I will be joined, as usual, by my partner in crime, Gary Action Jackson, on the east coast of the USA. And we appreciate everybody who tuned in last week to our show on Coverdale Page. The great collaboration between the legendary Jimmy Page and Whitesnake, the purple frontman, David Coverdale. Personal story for us, we were fans of it in college. We were so glad when it came out. We had tickets to see them, but they went ahead and canceled that tour. I just didn't have the ticket sales that they hoped it would. But it was still an interesting album to review, and we're still very hopeful that David Coverdale will put out a 30th anniversary edition with some additional tracks. Hopefully some of that live stuff from Japan, because they did do some live shows over there. So we can all be hopeful of that. But as you might know, if you're a long-time listener to the show, I used to live in London. I used to live just a few yards off of Abbey Road. And on episode 52, I told you all about how I got to visit Abbey Road Studios, take a tour, hear a lecture about the legendary recording studio, and it was a lot of fun. And one of the bands that made their name by recording in those hallowed halls was Pink Floyd. And it just so happens in the month of March... Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon, one of the biggest selling albums of all time, a groundbreaking progressive rock album, is turning 50. It was released March 1st in the U.S. I believe it was March 16th in the U.K. So we're going to slide our review out kind of right in between there. But I remember sitting in Studio 2 just thinking, wow, the Beatles did amazing things here, and so did Pink Floyd. They recorded some of Dark Side here. Oh my God, I can't believe it. I believe they did some of Wish You Were Here there. They did a lot of the stuff in the 60s and early 70s at Abbey Road. And of course, we have done some great Pink Floyd reviews over the years. Our third show was on Delicate Sound of Thunder, the movie and live album, and we didn't really know what we were doing when it comes to podcasting, but we did our best. And we eventually reviewed A Momentary Lapse of Reason, the latter-day Pink Floyd, Roger Waterless Pink Floyd album, which was big for us because it came out when we were in high school. But a real highlight of our Pink Floyd life here was not only when I got to see Nick Mason's Saucer Full of Secrets at Royal Albert Hall in London last spring and basically sat on the stage. But Pantheon Podcast, of which we are a proud member, and you can check out at Pantheon Pods to learn about all of our fellow Pantheon podcasters, they sponsored Nick Mason's Saucerful Secrets U.S. tour. So not only did Jackson and I get to go to Indianapolis to see Nick Mason's Saucerful of Secrets live, and we reviewed that on our 100th episode last fall, but we got to have Guy Pratt, who was the man who replaced Roger Waters in Pink Floyd, and Gary Kemp, who's probably most famous for being in Spando Ballet, who are the front men of Nick Mason's Saucer Full of Secrets. They came on show number 96. So we're happy to support Pink Floyd. We're happy to support Nick Mason's Saucer Full of Secrets. And when we heard that Dark Side of the Moon was turning 50, we said, you know what, I know a lot of people are going to be reviewing this, but we've got to throw our two sets in there. And we're not going to get super technical. There's a lot of rumors, there's a lot of stories, and there's a lot of different ways to tell you how they made this thing. As usual, we're going to come at it from our own personal perspective, what it meant to us, how did we find it, did we see Pink Floyd? Yes, I did in Tampa in 1994, and go track by track as we always do. Something we're not going to get into, folks, there's the old story that if you watch The Wizard of Oz and click play on, what is it, the second roar of the MGM line? Is it the third roar of the MGM line? Then it syncs up really well. 
we don't have time for that. We, we don't have time to sync it up and try to watch that and listen to it and see what it really means. It's nonsense. Alan Parsons and the band have debunked that many times over the years, okay? I don't know how many drugs you take or how much free time you have on your hands to figure out how that all syncs up together. If you do, God bless you. Have a day. We're not going to get into that on here. We're just going to dive into the incredible musicianship of Roger Waters, David Gilmour, Rick Wright, and Nick Mason. Not to mention the engineering of Alan Parsons, for which he won a Grammy for Dark Side of the Moon. But first, we got to take care of a little bit of business. We are proud members of Pantheon Podcast, and we like to give shout-outs to the folks who have helped us along the way, who have been on our show, or maybe we've been on their show. And that includes Christy Alexander Hallberg of Rock is Lit, Martin Popoff of History in Five Songs, Paul Stevenson of This Day Rocks on Vintage Rock Pod, the CEO, Christian Swain, Rock and Roll Archaeology, Jay at The Hook Rocks, and of course, the Kiss Kings, Tom and Zeus of the Shout It Out Loud cast and album review crew and Dorm Damage. And we're going to give them a shout out on this show. You got to listen to the whole thing to hear where, though. And we have to give a shout out to our incredible sponsor, RareVinyl.com. RareVinyl.com is based in the UK. They've been doing it 40 years, guys, and they have over a quarter of a million items in stock, including some amazing Pink Floyd stuff. Pink Floyd stuff is always in demand, and they've got first edition stuff. They've got rare stuff. They've got singles from Japan, posters, tour books. They've got all sorts of great stuff. So go to RareVinyl.com or EIL.com. Use the code podcast. And you can save 10% off your order. So if you want that rare Dark Side of the Moon copy, whether it's a first edition or maybe it's from a foreign country, or maybe you want one of the singles or something else, go to rarevinyl.com. Use code podcast. Save yourself 10%. They ship all around the world. They can get you what you need in pristine condition. Great folks. Definitely check out rarevinyl.com. So back to Dark Side of the Moon. You know, we didn't get into Pink Floyd till we were high schoolers in the late 80s. Thankfully, they had released momentary lapse of reason and the video and album delicate sound of thunder so that's when we first really started to get, get into those dark side songs then we go back we listen to a lot of classic rock radio and songs like time and money and us and them and brain damage they're just part of classic rock they're on the radio all the time it never went away heck it was on the u.s billboard top 200 for more than 15 years sonically it's extraordinary musically it's groundbreaking, but you can start to see where divisions might start to be popping up in the band. After Sid Barrett left, and he was really firmly in control of the band, they went through a period of the band figuring it out as a collective, as a collaboration between the four of them. Later, it would become The Roger Waters Show, and then when he left, basically David Gilmore would be in charge. Those are the kind of four phases of Pink Floyd. So we're kind of right at the apex of the collaboration with Dark Side of the Moon. So it came out in 1973, and so did I. We're going to get down and dirty into Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd on its 50th anniversary right here on The Wolf. So obviously... Everyone knows Dark Side of the Moon. If you grew up on classic rock radio the way we did, you can't avoid it, mm -hmm. right? Even if you don't know which albums these songs come from, they play money, they play time, they play us and them. When we were growing up in the 80s, like they came out in the 80s, right? And then you kind of realize, oh my God, all those are from one album. I guess I have to get that. And then you found out at the time... 
it had never left the charts. It was on the charts consecutively in the U.S. from 1973 when it came out until what, 1988, 1989, like over 700 weeks, you know? Yeah. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Crazy. I mean, how did you, growing up in, uh, in Connecticut, how did you come to Dark Side and to these songs? I think that, and I was trying to think about that. Part of it was from Delicate Sound of Thunder, which Mm -hmm. I pulled out. And actually, I pulled out my brandy new Blu-ray edition and put it on just to kind of get into the mood. And as a quick aside, they do play uh, one of these days on that, which is not on this record. But I have to say that, that to me, that was always the gold standard, right? I'd seen it a million times. I'd watched the VHS tape them playing it live right nick and the uh the gentleman from saucer full of secrets may have played it better it was so good that night it was so good and it could have been just because it was i didn't the 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 delicate sound of thunder was always on uh tape and this mm-hmm. was live but it right. was so good live so good live well same rhythm section right 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 and you know nick is holding down the the fort on both of those but yeah it, it just it blew me away that night that was a fun night. Yeah, that was great. No doubt yeah. about it. Yeah, it was it was awesome. Yeah, but I mean, you're right. I mean, Delicate Sound of Thunder is where we heard more of those. I mean, it, 
and us and them I thought was was great live mm. on Delicate Sound of Thunder. Didn't realize that it was a Rick Wright pen tune. Yeah. And and Dark Side of the Moon was always that, like you said, it was it was on the chart for so long. And there were like I don't know. It, there, there was always like urban legends around it. Like there was a there was a factory somewhere in England, mm-hmm. in the middle of nowhere, and all it did twenty four hours a day was produce Dark Side of the Moon records. <laughs> and you you hear that, and you're like, in high school, you're like, whatever, that's stupid, right? Wait, is there really a factory somewhere that just produces Dark Side of the Moon? How cool would that be? So it, you know, back in the days before the internet, when urban legends could run wild, there was always a, there was always mystery surrounding this record. You know, especially with with uh, the legend of Sid Barrett, and there was a guy in the band, and he kind of lost the bubble, and you know, they went on without him, and this was the this was like their tribute to this guy, and. You know, in 2023, we don't do a great job still with mental health. And I can imagine back in 1968, 1970, 72, when they were making this, it, it was it was a scary time for them also, because it, it's one of their friends, one of their compatriots who just he just lost it. Yeah, he slipped off his cracker, man. In a correct. Big correct. And, and you say to yourself, that's sad. And I really feel bad for my friend. But could I did the same thing happen to me? I don't know. So it it it's sad and it's scary at the same time, and it's it's something that I'm sure a lot of people just didn't talk about back then. Yeah, and I, especially in buttoned up Britain, where you know you just you Correct. don't talk about stuff like that, you know, or you talk about him. Oh, he's a loony, you know, stick right. him in the loony bin kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in '68 when it was obvious he was going downhill, and they got David Gilmore in the band to kind of you know pick up the parts where he wasn't playing much on stage and he was kind of zoning out or whatever. Right. Because for, for a while, Pink Floyd was a five-piece. And then eventually it was like, eh, should we go get Sid before the game? Like, nah, just leave him. Mm, you know, the, yeah. the four of us can handle it. So it, they probably had, I don't know if regret's the, the right word, but they probably felt a little guilty about that mm-hmm. because Sid drove the band. If there's the different stages of Pink Floyd, the first one, was when Sid was very much in control, when he was the driving creative force behind the band with C. Emily Play and Bike and Arnold Lane and all those kind of things. That's the Sid band, you know. The, the right. other guys were trying to catch up with him. And then after he left, it was very much a collaboration. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this album, which comes out in 1973, three months after you were born, three months before I was born, you know, we don't know a world without Dark Side of the Moon. Right. This was their big next step and in kind of almost the end of the collaboration period. We're starting to get closer to the Roger Waters led period. I, I guess Wish You Were Here was still still a bit of a collaboration. Mm-hmm. Animals really wasn't. Obviously the wall wasn't. That's when Roger is firmly in control of the creative side of the band. But here they are in Abbey Road Studios, EMI Studios at the time, and they're doing some amazing experimentation, and they're not trying to do these long, drawn-out 10, 12, 15-minute songs. They're trying to take some of the sonic aspects that they'd already created in previous work, metal being the album previous to Dark Side that came out in 1971, taking some of that sonicness and then breaking it down into smaller bite-sized pieces, you know, that that might be good on the radio. But then experimenting with all these cool little sounds and toys in the studio. Yeah, they had de- definitely had some new stuff. And we were talking to, to Christian from 
the CEO Pantheon, correct yeah. from Pantheon. He he made a he made a comment about how things in the that were recorded in the seventies had a giant leap sonically mm-hmm. from the sixties, and you can definitely tell on this record they were they were going all in on this a lot due to uh, Mr. Alan Parsons, who we'll talk about a little bit later. But yeah, you can really tell that they're they're just going nuts. There's a lot of new toys. There's a lot of new recording ways to record things. I think they used all of Abbey Road at one point in time. They were in about three different studios, using it to its fullest capacity. And you can you can definitely tell they've made a big leap forward on the the way it makes it sound. And one of the big things was quadraphonic sound at right. the time, which was the new you know bump bump bump. Like I remember when stereo came out, you know, in the masses, and they were like, "The thing is in stereo." Ooh, yeah, exactly. So, so the quadraphonic sound, and this is definitely one where you need either a decent hi-fi or put the headphones on because there's things happening in front of you, behind you, around things are jumping back and forth sonically. There's a lot going on here. Yeah, I mean, you can hear things going left to right, but if you can Mm -hmm. get surround sound where it can go left to right and front to back and all around you, this is one that was really groundbreaking here. And yeah, Mm -hmm. Alan Parsons, who would, of course, go on to have big success as as an artist, as a recording artist, and he had worked with the Beatles, you know, saw it in the documentary from Peter Jackson when he was kind of a clean cut, you know, (laughs) clean shaven in a suit kind of a guy. He actually won a Grammy for his work as an engineer on this album. I think it's the only Grammy. I think he's been nominated maybe eight or ten times. It's the only one he ever won. So what I wonder is, and I was trying to find this out, was there any kind of connection before this? Or was it just, hey, Alan, you work at for EMI, you know, what you want to take this on? Or did they have any kind of connection before that? I, I think he may have worked with them on, on some of their previous albums. He he obviously, yes, worked at EMI. He was an engineer there. Mm-hmm. And the, the Pink Floyd had been recording at Abbey Road or EMI, you know, since the 60s. And they would bump into the Beatles and talk to them and stuff like that. So the Beatles by this point had broken up. Now Pink Floyd's kind of one of the big residents there. And yeah, I, I think he had he had worked with them before. But I mean, you're right. I mean, look, not only do they have new toys and new like synthesizers and stuff like that, but the 28 tracks, the Beatles had four and it was hard <laughs> for them to do that. It's hard for them to kind of, he, George Martin, put that together. Now they had a 28 track and they probably use damn near all of them Mm -hmm. you know and like you said making it quadraphonic so it can spin around the room or it can go back and forth and front to back it was kind of amazing at the time and 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 groundbreaking and i feel like that had a lot to do with the success it's not just the songs because if you think about it it's a little bit of a concept album right and they talk about it's stuff that make people mad and I don't mean stuff that like make Americans mad, like, oh, there's no parking spaces. Not mad, angry. I'm talking about mad, insane, mm-hmm. crazy, make you mad uh, kind of thing. So and it was about the pressures associated with, you know, being in a band where you got a tour and you got to try to make money and then you got to try to make rare every year, six months or whatever. And, you know, reflecting on what happened to Sid. Mm-hmm. That kind of stuff. But I mean, if you really look at it, because now Breathe and um I'm sorry, the first song is... Speak uh, to me. Yeah, Speak to Me and Breathe. When we were kids, that was basically one song. Right. You know, it was like Speak to Me slash Breathe in parentheses in the air. In subsequent later day pressings, they kind of separated those things out. So it was like a four-minute song, but now it's Speak to Me is one minute, and it's an instrumental that has a lot of the background noise and a lot of the interviews that they conducted Mm -hmm. where you have people talking and stuff. And then Breathe is a Richard Wright 
David Gilmore penned track that's now a little less than three minutes with Gilmore singing. But sorry, right, so that, you know, it, there's a few instrumentals, right? You got mm-hmm. "Speak to Me," which is more of it's not even instrumental so much as soundscape, right? You got "On the Run," which is a pure instrumental. Any mm-hmm. color you like pure instrumental. All right, well, that's almost a third of the songs on the album. Great Gig in the Sky is mostly an instrumental. It, it's Claire Torrey, you know, using her voice evocatively. Right. right. And then and then you got some time, money, and us and them. Yes, big hits and, and great songs. And then, you know, brain damage is a bit of a loony thing, you know, uh, and, and Eclipse is kind of an odd way to, to kind of end the album. So Interesting that both of those those two tracks were all Roger Waters. All Roger Waters, mm-hmm. yeah. But you can hear it. Yeah. Correct, yes. Yeah, it <laughs> right. definitely takes a hard left turn after uh, Any Color You Like. That's right. So it's, although, you know, it's brilliant, and when you put that that soundscape, the quadraphonic sound with the sounds bouncing around and using the different kinds of noises and sound effects and things like that, it's ahead of its time. It's groundbreaking. It is cool. But then if you kind of break it down, it's like, okay, well, there's, you know, there's only really three or four songs on mm-hmm. here. Like, you know, so it, it is kind of surprising that it went out of sell, what, 50 million copies or something? Like, there's only like two or three records that have only have ever sold more mm-hmm. than Dark Side of the Moon. And of course, I, I dutifully bought one on CD once I, you know, found one at the right price one day. I'm like, oh, Dark Side, yeah, <laughs> need that for the can't You can't be a, a rock right. record collector right. without this in the collection. Yeah. And and you can't you can't gloss over the fact that the the cover on this thing is just super iconic. Also, I mean, there are people who have never heard this record before that you you show them that they would say, oh yeah, I've seen that before somewhere somehow. It's just become part of the the fabric of everything that you see during the day. And I think the deal was that it, they had a couple of different ones, a couple different what? A couple different album cover concepts. Oh yeah, yeah. In. And it was Storm Thurgerson. Thurgerson from Hypnosis. Correct. Yeah. He said he brought in like ten different options. Right. Got them mm-hmm. all set up. Here we go. And immediately they just gravitated toward the prism. Like every single one. I'm like, that's it. And he said, "Do you not even want to look at the rest of the stuff that I spent time <laughs> on? Nope. This is it. So I mean, he hit it out of the park. But I can imagine, you know, you're like, well, you know, it could be this or it could be that. No, it's the one thing, and that's it. And the other awesome thing is that it doesn't say anything on it. You know, that's Dark Side of the Moon. You don't have to. You don't have to put Pink Floyd. You don't have to put the album title. You know what it is. That's right. Yeah, it's iconic, no doubt. Correct. It's simple." Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's kind of become synonymous with the band. I mean, you, you, right. you put that up there and everyone knows exactly what it is. So we need to go ahead and get into the album. But, you know, it, right. there's so many things been said about this album. There's a lot of people who are going to review it now that it's turning 50. So mm. we don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole. But something that I thought was interesting, and we do research for these things, and we don't know as much before recording these things as as we do after we've done some research here. But they actually played it a year before it came out they did it live all right so they did metal and they did you know big tour uh britain japan and the united states they come back and they're like okay we're gonna work on these songs and then they uh they come up with this concept about things that make people go crazy and then roger's like the lyrics we're using are a little indirect why don't we get right up in their faces which is kind of what roger is known for Mm -hmm. 
these days. It's part of his legacy. It's like, let's not beat around the bush. Let's be very clear. Let's get right up in people's grills <laughs> and, and tell them exactly what we think. And then the, the band's like, all right, we kind of like Roger's idea here. And so Rick, who had a, I think he had a little bit of a, you know, a, some recording equipment in his house in Islington. Hmm. They start working on this. And I think, you know, Breathe came from something else they had done before. Maybe Us and Them, something else that he had, he had made for Zabriskie Point or something like that. Yeah. And they went to a Rolling Stones warehouse in London and, and worked on some of this. But yeah, then they went out and played it. It was premiered at the Dome in Brighton on the 20th of January, 1972. So more than a year before it comes out, they go out and play this to the British press. And the usually nasty British press looks like they were like, wow, you know, Pink Floyd are really going in a new direction here. This is kind of cool. Yeah. And I can imagine that too, if they, because if you get into the, the freak out psychedelic stuff, and now you're, like you said, you're very focused now on this one and very direct and to the point, I could see how the press would kind of have a change of heart on this. Although I can imagine if you showed up to a show and they played something totally new, would it be awesome? Or would you say, hey, wait a minute, where are the hits? Right. Yeah. Well, and I don't know if they played that whole thing because it's, you know, it's only 45 minutes or 42 mm -hmm. minutes or something like that. And then like, OK, and now we're going to play something that you might know. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure. Another thing that surprised me was they wanted to call it Dark Side of the Moon, but apparently there was a, another band called Medicine Head that already had an album called Dark Side of the Moon. Now, I don't know hmm. Medicine Head. I don't know them. There's a new podcast on Pantheon called The Ugly Things that kind of go back and, and talk about bands from like the 50s, 60s, and 70s that you might not know, you know, British bands. So maybe that's something that they would do one day. Huh. But I, I didn't know anything about them. And so for a while, they changed the concept name to Eclipse, and then once Medicine Head's album was a complete flop, then they went back to Dark Side of the Moon. <laughs> so calling it Eclipse would have been different. I, I I don't know if it would have hurt the sales any, but I feel like Dark Side of the Moon is so iconic. I, I, I mean, maybe they would have only sold 35 million instead of 50 million. I don't know, but you can't disassociate the name Dark Side of the Moon from Pink Floyd. Right. And then the thing is, too, you know, you think about what that means and then it's it, it can mean what you want it to. You know, is it is it about having mental problems? Is it about, you know, things that are that are obscure that you can't see? I don't know. It, it to me, that's that's much more. It's more iconic. Dark Side. Of, I mean, Eclipse is whatever. Right. Anything could be an eclipse, right? Anything Correct. Call that that. Yeah, and then they played it again on the seventeenth of February at the Rainbow Theater in London, and that's where there there were a lot of people there, so mm. and press people there. So then they had to go on a big lengthy tour of Europe and North America, and then they took a break, and then they came back to eventually complete the album in early seventy three, and then it was released. I think it was released in America on the first of March, and then in Britain in the middle of March, right? Like the 15th or something like uh, that? Yes. Uh -huh. So we were kind of releasing this in between those dates. And they had two different record companies. And I think they did very well. I mean, I think they got a, a million dollar record contract in America to help okay. distribute this, yeah. you know. And then and then they got a lot of money <laughs> from this. They got a lot of money from this. <laughs> I also learned on here that the band's road manager at the time was Peter Watts. Mm -hmm. And his daughter's name is Naomi. Hmm. Who just yeah, happens sounds to, very familiar. Yes, happens yeah. to be in a, 
a fantastic Giant actor. Star. Yeah, exactly. And a beautiful girl. Yeah, absolutely. And I also didn't know because you can hear them, uh, people talking like they're being interviewed. And I guess they, they had some different questions like, when was the last time you were violent? Were you justified in using it? You know? Yeah. And then they would give their questions. Well, are you afraid of dying? That kind of thing. Apparently they interviewed Paul and Linda McCartney mm-hmm. who were probably around recording some stuff for wings, yeah. you know, and the, and, they said, but they they were trying to be funny. They're trying too hard to get on the record. It's like, nah, you can't. We're not going to use you. Yeah, I want a real response, not shtick. Stop yeah, that. Exactly. Hi, this is Gary Kemp. And this is Guy Pratt. And you're listening to the Ugly American Werewolf in London podcast. <laughs> so, all right. So then we can we can get into it here. Sonically, you start off with speak to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But at the time, like when we were growing up, it was all one thing, speak to me, breathe. It's important to note that both sides of the album, there is no fade out from one song to another. There's no Mm -hmm. clear stoppage. They all kind of fade into each other, evolve into each other. You could really have have done this as one track. Yeah. Yeah. And and I'm glad they didn't because it makes it more accessible to people. But yeah, you're right. It, It is. If you're not paying attention, it sounds like one big song. Yeah, I mean, you can break out time for the radio, I guess, mm-hmm. you know. And, and look, yes, you know, for like Close to the Edge, they would break. I mean, it was basically one whole side of the album was one long right. song with different suites or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then they would break out four minutes of something you could pop on the radio. So, yeah, you could do that. Sometimes it's pretty obvious, like between the end of On the Run and then time, when you hear the ticking and stuff like that, it's like, okay, yeah. obviously we're into something else here. But yeah, even the first three, they all kind of run together. Speak to me, eh, I don't know if it should be its own thing. They do attribute the music to Nick Mason, though, so he gets kind of a, it's yeah. his own right on there, his own credit, whereas you know, Breathe in the Air was, was Richard and, and was Rick Wright and David. And apparently nobody can remember why that is that he gets solo credit on that. It's just, is that right? Happened. Yeah, that's what I, I saw a couple of different interviews. And they're like, yeah, I don't know why that happened, but oh, well, there it is. But yeah, that, it, and it's nice too, because it's kind of sets up. There's a couple of sounds in there that they use, you know, mm-hmm. the, the money sound there's clocks in there. So it kind of sets you up for the rest of the things that you're going to hear in the record. The screaming lunatic in yes, there. That's, yeah. that's a little disturbing, especially yeah. to a teenager. The first time you hear this, you're like, <laughs> what are we doing here? Right, right. So that morphs into breathe or mm-hmm. breathe in the air, and it, it that's very Pink Floyd, uh, I think. To me, breathe. You know, it's yes. very mellow. It's got David's voice on it. Don't be afraid to care. Run, rabbit, run. That's something that we've just kind of become familiar with, and it's it's pretty chill. And it's something they did play. I mean, they they would play it in concert. They played it when I saw them in 1994 in Tampa. They played it, and they also had a reprise of it. Okay. Uh, you know, like a song later or whatever. So classic, classic song. You don't, you, I don't know. You might hear it 
on classic rock radio, you would generally hear the two of them together because again, right. it was basically one track when we were growing up. And and they start to put in this is where the the theme starts to come in about how you know you're talking about run rabbit run dig that hole when you're done don't sit down it's time to dig another one like there's that there's this underlying theme of the, the passage of time and and things starting to pick up and I wonder if you can be attracted to something and not really know why. And I think it, it, this, I think they were like 27, you know, 26, 27 about that time when they made mm -hmm. this. And it's, it's the, it's the concept of when you're a kid, you're kind of waiting for life to begin. Like, okay, okay. So what, you know, what's going to be, what's, what am I going to be when I grow up? What, you know, what is this going to happen? And then you realize, wait a minute, I am an adult. This is life. Uh oh, you know, am I missing something? And, and so I think, if you, it, most people get into this when they're in a, they're a, they're a teenager, unless you're really cool, which I wasn't. But right, <laughs> right, cool parents. Yeah, you kind of you you're kind of drawn to that. Like, hey, yeah, wait a minute. When is life going to begin? What what is life going to be like? And and am I maximizing it or am I letting it slip away? You know, am I am I living my life to the fullest potential? And kind of the fear that you're not that you're waiting for something else to happen. And that that's just always the underlying current of this record, I believe. Yeah, and it's uh, and I, even though this one was penned by Rick and David, it, it, mm -hmm. it's very much in Roger's whole thing. Like you're just grist for the mill. Like yeah, you it, you gotta you gotta dig that hole, and then you gotta get to sleep because the next day you gotta dig another one. You know, it's right? Time to make the donuts, right? You just gotta get <laughs> up and you do it again and you do that until they're done with you or until, mm -hmm. you know, you've got enough of a pension or whatever that you can not do it anymore. And yeah, I'm, I'm completely in tune with that, you know, after days of investment banking and days of doing startups where yes, I've made myself some money, but I made a lot of other people a lot more. And I'm like, well, now I'm almost 50. Do I get to look the way I want to look now? Can I, can mm -hmm. I have beard and a long hair or do I just have to kind of, keep looking like the same old jackass that everybody else looks like. No offense. I know you got to be clean shaven for your job, but you know, uh, it's like, when, when do I get to, to enjoy my life? When do I get to right. do what I want to do? Right. You know? And, and I think, and that's, and that's part of it too. You know, you, you wanted to be in this band. You wanted the band to be successful. You've got all of those things now, but now I'm working 18 hours a day. And I've got people just, you know, where's the next thing? Either you're going to be on tour or you're going to make another record and then you're back out on tour again. And, you know, people, I mean, again, you said you were making, you said you were making money for yourself, but also for other people. Right. Same thing here too. Like, wait a minute, we sold how many records and this is what I get to keep from it. Exactly. I got a lot of people's hands in my pockets mm -hmm. and I know, and I know part of this would translate into have a cigar on uh wish you were here when it's right. just, you know you go in and you talk to the greasy record guy who's just like hey boy it's, yeah you know what which get one's pink correct <laughs> yeah. get out of my face and and yeah it, it's just that is this really what i wanted and wh when will this when will this treadmill stop or slow down or something maybe this isn't exactly what i thought this was going to be run, rabbit, run. Well, 
And the answer is after you put this album out, then you get to go do whatever you want to do. <laughs> the money rolls in on this one, you know, and they all bought mansions in the country after this. But the third song on the run, I, it really kind of picks up here. And this is kind of where I call it the mechanical ecstasy starts with you can really hear they're playing with these new toys mm -hmm. and it sounds you know that kind of thing and it, it really sounds mechanical and almost industrial in some ways and again you can hear someone running down the hall at the beginning of this using that those sound effects you can hear more voices and the the odd quadraphonic electronica where you can hear things kind of yes. swirling around you it, it's groundbreaking yeah. It's cool, and you can kind of feel that, okay, yeah, now it's, it, it's on the run is a great title for this because you can feel it's picking up like you're trying to keep pace with something. Right, right, and it's you're, you're, you're just frantic. Something is always happening. The vocal part at the beginning, it sounds like an like a airport announcement or something. Mm -hmm. So it's that concept of you're always just moving. You're always, you know, again, you're either recording, you're on the, you're on the road, you're back, you're going. I guess Rick Wright had a big fear of flying and yeah, I didn't know dying that. in a plane crash. And yet I spend most of my life on a freaking plane now. So yeah, that's very, it's, it's very, it makes you very nervous all the time. wonder if he even wanted to to record learning to fly before momentary lapse of reason but david and nick kind of got over that because they both became pilots mm -hmm. but this is one this is a waters and gilmore collaboration hard to imagine one of those today but i guess right. they were in better they, they were in better place then but you know you're right because at the beginning it does sound like something from the airport kind of announcement yeah. but the end of the song is a plane sounds like it's crashing, right? It's, yeah. like it's coming down there, and that's kind of the end before it morphs into time. So that probably had something to do with Rick's fears as well. It's like you, you're scared of flying. Well, let me let me put something on there that's really going to make you scared. You know, an actual plane crash. You guys are jerks. <laughs> Although I guess the deal was that they were playing with those sequencers, which was the new big toy, and you know, speeding it up and slowing it down. And I guess Gilmore had a sequence that he wanted to use and then waters came in and said no 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 no, i got something better and Gilmore, well, you know what do you know and then he played it and he's like yeah no that's a lot better all right so yeah. it, it is nice that you can say you know what i yield i that is better go ahead and use it yeah and that's that's what a band should be i mean mm -hmm. say no i don't want to do this well i do want to do it and then you work it out and you get the best stuff out of it right if if there's one person dictating well there probably will be some good stuff on there, but there's probably, you know, some stuff that's you should have someone able to push back on you. Right. Right. And say, this is not our best, or this it could be done better. And someone's like, Nope, my concept, you have to fall in line. All right, well, then maybe there's some stuff on a double album that comes out at the end of seventy nine. <laughs> I'll bide my time. That isn't as good as it could be. Brilliant moments throughout, yes, mm -hmm. great concept, but maybe not every piece is amazing. Yeah, you you do wonder, and that's a whole other rabbit hole you could go down, if 
everybody else was allowed to do a little more what that what that could have been could it have been a little not quite so dark maybe yeah yeah and use utilize rick wright i mean yeah he, he barely used him and then he kicked him out of the band i'm like what is wrong with you he he's a huge talent he writes great songs great keyboard player and i love his voice i really mm -hmm. do yeah, he does a really he does a, a good job with Gilmore. The two of their voices together sound they complement each other very well. They do, and I, and so side note here, mm -hmm. because while I was on the plane coming back to America, there was a great documentary on our buddy Chuck Lavelle, who is probably best known for being the piano player and now the musical director of the Rolling Stones. Previous to that, he was with the Allman Brothers, but. After Rick died, because when David went out and did solo stuff uh, in the 2000s, after the dissolution of Pink Floyd, mm -hmm. Rick would sing the Roger part, Uncomfortably Numb. Okay. And then, obviously, Rick died. Yeah. Uh, and then David wanted to go out and tour. So he picked Chuck up to not only play the keys part, but then Chuck would sing Rick's part on that song. Okay. And there was a bit in the film where the the backup singer is like we all know that that chuck can play the keyboard really well but then his voice was like no way he can really <laughs> sing and then david came on and said yeah i think chuck sang that bit better than anyone who had done it before now that includes any, rick Wright. Any, i was gonna well but anyone anyone though even the original well yeah i i know it was supposed to be more of a jab at roger yeah. than a jab at rick i know and obviously this is a story about it was called a tree man because he's a big tree farmer and his one like national tree farmer of the year because he's also kind of a, a conservatist and a, an environmentalist you know there's mm -hmm. there's a way to do it right so great documentary if anyone wants to see it has a lot of superstars in it and it had guy pratt in it too but anyway i, I like rick's voice and then getting into the next song time where gilmore and wright both sing mm -hmm. a little harmony but both basically they're taking their time i think that's part of the brilliance of this song is having both of them on there. Yeah, and at the beginning, you kind of, at, at coming off of On the Run, you kind of think, okay, is this another instrumental? Because it starts off, you've got that, um, you've got Rick kind of floating on top with his keyboard stuff. You've mm -hmm. got Nick playing, I don't know what he's playing, because it's not, he, it's his own part. It does, it's not, it's not keeping the beat. Right. He's, he's doing the, kind of the tribal drums in the, uh, in the background. And then you go into the vocals and you're like, wow, this is, okay, this is something different than you've heard before on this record. Yeah, and this is the only, I think it's the only one that was penned by all four of them, right? So they, they all get credit yeah. on this. And honestly, they're all on fire on this mm. individually and together. The four of them are at their best on this track, on the album. Because it starts off with the, the sound of the kind of, Ticking clock. clocks yeah. and the alarms. It's all in stereo. It's all around you. And then there's that metronome yeah. going on. And then Roger's got that mm, bass in there. It's, it's really kind of, yeah, it's menacing at the at the beginning. Yeah, it's it's iconic, but you're right. It is menacing. And that bass is so good. It, it's one of the first things that I ever really recognize as the bass. As we said on the show for so long, we're such big lead guitar freaks you know mm -hmm. like that's the sound we look for that's the distinguishing bit of of most songs to us in rock and roll certainly in hard rock and roll that it, i had to grow up before i really could pick out the bass and really understand its value and what it's doing there but this mm -hmm, mm -hmm, you can really see his contribution and the way it defines the song yeah 
Yeah. But then, and, but you're right with Nick's drums kind of just doing some sound color there. Yeah. But also it is iconic. And, and especially in the run up from the, the kind of bass to then taking away when they get into to David's vocal, yeah. his drums between that really are amazing. Yeah, and 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 it doesn't it doesn't sound like anything else on the record either before or after, and so it kind of sets this one apart as really the first single, I guess. Even though it wasn't really it wasn't really released, I don't think as a single at the time, but this was like the first real kind of standalone song on the record that they would play on the radio. Yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I guess the singles were uh, were money and and us and them. Them, yeah. But I mean, this was played on American rock radio so much, and it's it's something I feel like everyone can relate to. Again, you're talking about we're talking about on the run. Is this you know? Am I maximizing my life? Am, am I doing what's best? The lyrics here are so good mm-hmm. and so poignant. And timeless, which is kind of ironic. It's about time. And you could relate to I could relate to it when I was a teenager. Like, oh, I, I should probably be doing more. You know, I, I should be doing more for, for in school or I should be training harder or something right. like that. Or, you know, I, I should be doing more research into college. Now it's like, yeah, 10 years have got behind you and turn around. <laughs> oh, my God. You know, I, I was 40 and I was becoming a father for the first time. And now I'm 50 and I'm like, I'm, I'm, a, I'm closer to the end than I am to the beginning now, man. Right, right. And that, that is definitely a big, a big thing in your life when you, when you turn 50, even though I didn't think it was going to be, you kind of, you can, things kind of come into focus a little more. And yeah, it's, you know, it, wait a minute. 10 years have got behind you. No one told you when to run. What's what's going on here? You, you missed the starting to, gun. Yeah. And then there comes David's guitar. Best guitar work on the album. In my you know, they, the, the big one, the big one is always comfortably numb, right? That's the big. Of soul. course. This one, I think, holds up with that. It can yeah. pretty much go toe to toe. It's really good. And I kind of, not that I forgot about it, but I kind of didn't really give it its just due on this, but he's just ripping it up on this one. No, it, it's it's amazing, man. And yeah. I think it's because once you get into this album, you listen to it a lot. Oh man, listen, this is cool. Eventually you kind of have to put it down because okay. to me, it's, it's honestly, when was the last time I listened to this all the way through? Mm-hmm. It was not in my forties. It was not in my thirties. So it's been decades since I really sat down. Okay, I'm going to listen to all of Dark Side yeah. of the Moon here because you hear time on the radio, you hear money on the radio, you, you hear some of these other things in the radio. So like, I'll get my fix at some point this week, this month from classic rock radio. But to sit down and listen to this, I'm like, God, David's guitar is so good there. Mm-hmm. It's so good. The ladies singing background, and we should probably give them credit. We'll talk about Claire to- Tory here in a bit but doris troy leslie duncan and liza strike did the backing vocals and i guess barry st john as well on some of these but their contribution to this record is really important as far as the the way the sound works and sometimes it's just ah it's just that kind of thing in the background yeah but they're really good they really help make this song yeah and i think that's as much as gilmore's guitar is the signature sound of Pink Floyd, I think that those backing vocals are too. Like it, it would not be the same thing. And and we mentioned before getting into this with Delicate Sound of Thunder, they had backup singers there, mm-hmm. front and center. That was the other thing too. I I realized about Delicate Sound is everybody's in the front. It was yes. pretty cool. It's not like Gilmore is standing, you know, a butt. I mean, he's standing right next to Nick Mason. 
and he's standing right next to the backup singers. Like everybody is, there is no, there is no hierarchy or it doesn't seem like that in that, in that setup, which I thought was thought was cool. But yeah, the, the, that, those female voices are are a very big part of this track. And then later on too, when you get into into uh, brain damage and then eclipse. That's right. Yeah. No. And and you're right to mention delicate sound of thunder. When they do this on that, the girls are badass on yes. this song. In that, I mean, they're sexy and everything, and, and they've got cool moves. They got cool choreography. But they're they're making the song, you know, and they're singing their hearts out. And I'm. I, I, you know, look, I, I fell in love with Rachel Fury. I really fell in love <laughs> with all three of them. But, but you see this song, you see them do it live. It's one thing to hear it, but to see it do it live, they really bring a, a, a sexiness to it. Mm. Because, you know, you think about time, about getting older and missing opportunities and stuff like that. That's not real sexy. Here's, but, here's the other thing that was not real sexy either on Delicate Sound of Thunder. It was, what, 87, 88 when they did that? And yeah. All of the gentlemen are wearing very large, oversized '80s suits. Right. A lot of a lot of white socks and loafers too. I'm like, oh boy, you're going to look <laughs> back on this. These fashion choices were, were, I mean, it's what was around then, but yeah, not super exciting. Whereas the girls were hot with those form-fitting mini dresses. Correct. I mean, uh, Timeless. Just, just amazing. But I mean. Roger's bass is sick throughout because when I listen yeah. to it again, because obviously I'm captivated by David's solo. So then I mm. during the solo though, I can hear Roger still plodding away on that bass. And I'm like, this is so good. The four of them together are so good on this. This is a triumph for them. Right. And, right. and then, and, and then there's that weird, it, it, the ending, right? You think the song's over, but then there's this minute at the end of it. That's like, all right, it's not just, you know, thought I'd something more to say kind of thing. Right. And then I wonder that when they go into home, home again, is that coming home from being on the road, being from the craziness and, and, you know, you're saying you want to get out of this town. You want to, you want to maximize things, but there is a point where I've been blowing myself out for months and months and months. It's nice just to come back to my house and just relax for two seconds and maybe enjoy that, you know, the hometown where you think, well, this is kind of a small place, but it's actually really nice here. Yeah. And I want to relax for a minute. And they have that great line, you know, going back to Sid Barrett about hanging on in quiet desperation is the English way. Mm hmm. Oh. And that's just kind of accepted. That's, you know, what do they call it? The stiff upper lip. That's no matter what's happening, everything's good. Don't worry about me. Let's just keep going. Right, right. Very waspy New England thing, too. I'm sure you grew up with people around there <laughs> yeah. who are the same way, you know. Correct. Like, nothing's wrong here. Two right. of your kids committed suicide and they died of natural causes. <laughs> like, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. And then we move into what was at the time the last song on the first side. Mm -hmm. The Great Gig in the Sky, yeah. which is a Richard Wright, Rick Wright pen song. But the uh, what makes the song is Claire Tony's soaring emotional vocals, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which kind I guess amazing. Yeah. And I guess she when she came in there, there wasn't a whole lot of direction. And she went into like, ooh, baby, baby or something like that. And they're like, no, we don't want we want you to sing, but we don't want you to say any words. Okay, let me try something else then. And apparently, like she apparently she said, Gilmore was really the only person who was giving her any kind of direction. Everybody else just kind of you know do whatever. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean that that definitely does make it. And you know, again, are we going back to Sid Barrett where she goes into the screaming parts? 
which I don't know, like she kind of, I, I don't know what happened there. Like, I think she made up some of it, but then they told her what to do. But to me, that sounded like, you know, you get to a point and then you just start to freak out. Right. Yeah. And it's, is it, is it the pain of getting older? Is it because great gig in the sky that kind of denotes death, right? Correct. Yeah. So once your time runs out, you're moving on. Yeah. Right. So, and so this is, is it part of the sadness of leaving life? Is it part of, you know, getting on to the afterlife here or whatever? So, and I tried to just listen to the song without her voice. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think there's maybe a little pedal steel from David. It could be underneath there, yeah, yeah. yeah. There, and that's the whole thing with this whole record. If you if you really go and I mean, you could take out the pieces of it. There's a lot going on there. There's there's always more than you think. Well, there's 28 tracks, so they can yeah. squeeze all sorts of stuff in there, right? Mm -hmm. But without her doing that, it's just a piano piece. I mean, kind of a nice piece, but it's mm -hmm. it's it's not nearly the same. It's interesting you say that because <laughs> I was looking at this. I was, you know, I, I like to look at the the liner notes, the whole nine yards, and this is this is credited to Wright and Claire Torrey. And I thought, well, that's mighty decent of you to give her writing credits on that. You know, I mean, she made up the vocal part on her own. Great. Let's see. Go two thousand four lawsuit. What is this? Yeah. Oh, wait <laughs> a minute. No, you didn't. You didn't give her anything, and then she sued you. And then she sued you, and you know. <sighs> usually I'm always on the side of the band and I don't mm. want people who write the music to get sued. But I, I got to say the song, the whole heart of the song, the whole reason we know the song as it is, it was because of her vocal performance. And if no one said, sing this note, sing that note, she really did make it of herself. Then yes, yeah, she did write that. And mm. they did give her some settlement and going forward from 2003 or 2004, whatever it is, she does get royalties on that, which is probably a nice little, uh, annuity for her that's yeah. not bad mailbox money yeah exactly now i'm fairly certain when they played nebworth in 1990 and they went on last uh, much to the chagrin of paul mccartney's manager who said paul mccartney's going on last he's paul mccartney to which pink floyd's manager said no we just did the biggest tour in the history of the world <laughs> and we're going on last but i think she did come out and join them and then join oh the rest of the of their backup singers for some other songs so she kind of came out center stage to sing some of that which is which is kind of neat also on stage with them that day doing the saxophone was a very young candy dulfer who uh -huh. i think had just kind of emerged on the scene with her sexuality record Mm -hmm. And beautiful Dutch woman who I got to see at the Paradiso in the last month there. And she is still kick-ass and awesome to this day and still very foxy. So uh, shout out to Candy there. But <laughs> you mentioned that the guys wearing like the, the loose-fitting pantsuits with the shoulder mm -hmm. pads. She was kind of wearing the same thing, Aww. you know. Well, you know, look, they weren't trying to over-sexualize. I mean, she was young. If in 1990 we were 17 or 18, she was maybe... 20 you know so mm. she she was pretty young herself 
you know, these days they would have had her in a mini skirt in a halter top or something like that. But, but back then she, they, they weren't trying to over sexualize her. And so, and she probably wasn't really in control of her own fashion and career at that point. She was trying mm. to probably following the advice of certain people. So it's not like she looked bad, but hey, times were different back then. Let's just yeah, say. <laughs> it, it is, it is interesting to go back and look at some of the stuff. Some of the stuff works, you know, would work today and some of the stuff just doesn't. Yeah. And that oversized, uh, like you said, shoulder pads and yeah, it's a suit, but it looks like it's about four sizes too big for you. Yeah. No, you have to understand that was the look back then. Okay. Yeah. Right. Go put your, you don't have linebacker shoulders under there. Right. You're a guitar player, you know. <laughs> <laughs> You're not that broad shoulder, you know. It's it's okay. But that is the end of side one. Now getting into side two, you start off with money again, right up in your face. Mm-hmm. Obviously, to me, I don't have to look at the notes to know that Roger Waters wrote this one. <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> obviously, you know, and and David sings it. But, you know, they have all the sound effects, the, like, the, you know, the change hitting the thing and the mm-hmm. ripping of the thing and the, the cash register doing. And then it, it sounds like a bunch of noise, but then all of a sudden there's a certain rhythm to it. And then Roger comes in with that big fat bass, yep. that iconic bass. And then we're, we're off and running on a, an incredibly classic song. So totally unrelated to this, and I don't know why he asked me this the other day. But my son said something about how did they how did they like edit records before digital? I said, well, they had to actually physically take a razor blade and cut the tape and then right. join it together. And I guess Parsons was saying that's about seven different sounds that you hear, you know, between the cash register, the change, other stuff that you he had to manually kind of paste together so that they would all fire at the same time and. I can't even imagine the the technical skill it took to put that together to make it sound coherent on this giant reel of tape that you're working around this machine. I don't even want to think about it, to be honest with you, because I I look at the pains I go to (laughs) to edit just the two of us. It's basically two tracks and then a third for like sound effects and the song snippets that we put in there, you know, that I'm making for dozens of listeners around the world. I guess it should be hundreds, but whatever. And and you know, I'm just like, this is a real labor of love. But then to do it with that tape, yeah. my God, what an arduous, difficult process that must be, man. Uh, and and so- to think about, no, I I understand what you want to do, and and I can make that happen. And and to have, and that's, and I know Waters gets he's maligned now because he's he, he's kind of a. Well, dick. he's always been a well, he's and then he's got some right, he is a dick, and then he's got some uh political views that are very, very not cool, right? And so, but he really is at one point in time, let's put it this way, he really was a genius to put this stuff together. It's just you know, I think he's fallen off the yeah, off the plane of reality, I guess, yeah, and you know, I mean, he, he's been a solo artist for you know, 40 years, basically not really taking anybody's advice. Mm -hmm. He's been divorced three or four times, which, you know, which shows you he's not easy to live with, but he's, he's right on it here because, you know, money is, you know, 
it drives so many things. It's obviously in America just driving everything. It's kind of sad. Some great lines in there. Think I'll buy me a football team, you know, <laughs> give me a Learjet, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. What I didn't realize is, you know, because there's that kind of line in there. It's like, don't give me that do-goody-good bullshit. Sometimes you would hear that on the radio in America. And sometimes you wouldn't. It'd say, mm-hmm. they did do-goody-good bull. And then mm, it would fade yeah. out. Apparently, they had the single, and they had one side of uh, one side with that and one side without it. I always just kind of assumed that the DJ, because I think you got to pay a fine in America if you if you say something nasty on the radio. So they would just kind of you thought they would just kind of manually they would manually mute it out or something yeah. like that. But it's not like they would mute the whole song because you can still hear the music in the background. It shows you what I knew about how things work. But still. I, I always thought that was that was odd, but it's like, yeah, sometimes it's on the song and sometimes it isn't. And, and so even into the 80s, I'm like, they're still playing that old 45 or whatever on the radio. Like, that's how mm. they get it. It's not on a tape. Maybe it was, they converted it to a tape, but it's like, yeah, they, they still had the version, the, the quote unquote clean version there. So, uh, and then maybe they would play it after eight or nine o'clock with the bullshit. But if you played it during the day, it was just bull. Yeah, I guess it depends on who's listening too. The FCC is out there always trolling the waters. That's for sure. But this features Dick Perry on the saxophone. Pretty iconic sax. Yeah, it just on I, this. Yeah, I've got the I've got it just kind of rips through when it comes in cuz you've got that like you've got the the waters, you know, boom 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 boom, boom and then the guitar ring you know, comes in. Yeah, that kind of comes in and then the sax just rips it up. It's fantastic. Really is. Yeah, really good. Of course, being Delicate Sound of Thunder fans, we can't get the image of the power super mullet out of our heads. Correct. Correct. Uh, uh, unbelievable hairstyle of the ages right there. Um, <laughs> okay, so then that's that's kind of up in your face, money, that kind of thing. Then we move to us and them, which is mellow. Now, it's kind of heavy, you know, because it's talking about the haves and the have-nots of society, Right. And, and in an English society, which is still a very much a class society. Yes. But it is a beautiful song. It is a kind of a gear shifter from the kind of straightforward in your face money. And you're right, ripping sax. But in here, the sax is more, for the most part, it's it's more pretty, right? Yes. Yeah. It just, it floats in there nice. Yeah. It's, it's very, it's the same instrument, but it's very, very, it's calmer. This whole thing is calmer. And, you know, we talked about this before you cut, you come in from money, which is waters Mm -hmm. to us and them, which is Rick Wright. Yes. And then it's just, yeah, it's, it's a perfect change of pace. It's not, it's not the same thing. It's not dark. It's not, it, well, actually it is a little dark, but, but the music is, is very calm. No, you're right. No, and look, these are longer songs. I don't know if they truncated them on the singles. I mean, money's over six minutes long. I, th- I think so. Yeah, I think there are. They they do have a single edit of these things. They do. Okay, yeah, because because us and them is is almost eight minutes, and like mm-hmm. they're you know that's not a single length there. It it's also seems to be a, a bit of a forebear to uh, on the turning away. 
Could be, yeah. You know, because uh, it's kind of some of the same issues. But again, the ladies' voices, the back, the backup voices on us and them here, very powerful. Really helped make the song. And apparently, they they recorded the Rick recorded this by himself in I think Studio Three on the piano because that was the classic uh, classical setup. So they mm-hmm. wanted they wanted it to sound like that. And he would listen to the rest of the band playing in the other studio in his headphones so they, they can get it synced up. But apparently, and this is according to, to Alan Parsons, they there were one or two takes where they put a tape on and he didn't know that. So he's in there concentrating. They're sitting there watching him. And then he turns and he's like, well, uh, messing with me. And they're like, oh, yeah, wonders of studio magic. That's interesting. I did not know that. But I do know because, uh, as you know, we did a uh, episode number 52 was about my chance to visit Abbey Road mm-hmm. Studios and hear a lecture. And I didn't get to go into Studio 3. Studio 1 is ginormous, and it's kind of where they record soundtracks, and like where John Williams and the orchestra okay. might be. Studio 2 is pretty darn big, and that's kind of the Beatles hangout in there. That's They've kind of made it famous. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and obviously Pink Floyd worked in there as well. Studio 3 is, is a lot smaller, and it probably is where you know, Rick would, would have recorded that. And I think it's upstairs. So the, the setup is it's, it's massive studio too. It, it's, it's like a two or three story room, but it's all one big open space. And then there's steps upstairs to the control room. I think the control room used to be downstairs, but then uh-huh. they moved it upstairs. And I think that upstairs there is, is where studio three is kind of like down the hall. So they could, you know, Alan and the gang could have been in the engineer's room and they just kind of waltz down the hallway and like look <laughs> through the window or, or, or been in the control room there to kind of see what he was doing. That that makes sense. And it's and it's amazing too because I mean you said you went in and took the tour. I mean we we went and and I stood in front of the place mm-hmm. and looked at it and you would never think it was that big from the outside. Yeah, it goes back. Yeah, and, and it also goes down. It, it's okay. it's long and it's deep. Yeah, and if you see pictures from like the '60s when the Beatles were there, it wasn't as built up around it either. I mean, it's a residential St. John's Wood neighborhood. Mm-hmm. They have built obviously. All, there's there's no except for a park there's no like empty space there there's streets and then there's homes and they go straight up but it's i think it's it's a really strong message without being roger strong is what i say it's not up in your face people are dying in the streets uh, it's yeah. just like you know there are those in the world who don't have what we have and you know right. we have to you know, we, we need to take time to resolve this or, you know, do something to help them, you know, where it's not in your face, Roger Strong, but it is a powerful song with a message. Yeah, and, and definitely some heavy duty themes in there, more than one theme to think about. It, and unfortunately, because there's a note here that says uh, the first verse is about going to war, how the front, how on the front, front line, we don't get to communicate uh, with one another because someone else has decided that we shouldn't. The second verse is about civil liberties, racism, and color prejudice. The last verses about passing uh passing a tramp on the street and not helping right this was in 1972 and guess what people still all those it's things all hanging around same. today <laughs> correct yeah. out of the way it's a busy yeah. day i've got things on my mind i right. can't i can't give you money that would just be it'll buy me a cup of tea that might keep you alive yeah mm-hmm. i got stuff yeah. to do i do notice being back in america there seemed to be a lot of more panhandlers about in certain areas. It seems like we are in rougher times than the 
press might want to make it seem. Mm-hmm. And 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 if you go to if you go to big cities, especially on the West Coast, it is it's it's out of control now. It, it's something we got to do something because we can't go on like this. Hi guys, this is Chris Slade, drummer of ACDC and many others, and you're listening to the ugly, I mean really ugly, Werewolf in London. (laughs) All right, so then they get to the next, the last instrumental on the record, Any Color You Like, which was penned by everyone but Roger, which is interesting to me, because it's not like Roger doesn't play on it. Mm -hmm. So Rick and Nick and David wrote this bit, and they probably it came out of a jam together. I like the guitar work from David on this, but it's kind of a funky little thing. Yeah, it, it, this is almost like a this is almost like a psychedelic callback, is what I've got on here. This is more like it doesn't it doesn't really sound like anything else on the record, but it does kind of to me sound like more old school Pink Floyd. Yeah, so when they started off, Pink Floyd was a pop band, you know, with mm-hmm. two minute songs about. Arnold Lane, who runs around stealing girls' panties off the clothesline or, you know, <laughs> talking about his bicycle or, you know, odd little things. Then they got into this heavy, you know, going to UFO club and stretching out these things and getting mm-hmm. into metal and stuff like that. Echoes, you know, which is 20-minute sweet or whatever. They became this psychedelic thing. So this is maybe, like you say, a bit of a callback using some of that. I guess the, the name, Any Color You Like, it was supposed to be a knock on consumerism, like having choice, but not really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, you can have any color you like, but it's the same thing. And we're going to charge you the same, you know. It's like you get a toaster, right? It makes toast. You can get it any color you like, but it's still <laughs> a toaster, you know. I mean, not one that I would skip, you know, because you don't really skip any. Again, they all kind of one right. melds into the other. So there's no real need to. To skip it, and there's there's some cool stuff on there, but this is not a standout track on this album to me. No, it's it's just it's just a little. Well, it's it, it's it's you don't know it at the time, but it's setting you up for for the the big finish here. I mean, it's only three minutes and twenty eight twenty six seconds is what they have it listed here, and it's it's a nice it's a nice segue. brain damage which is definitely one they play on the radio mm-hmm. and is very poignant and is fairly obviously about sid but it's it's roger singing now right i mean right. david does most of the singing he basically sang everything except for the bits that rick sang mm-hmm. along the way not to mention what claire tory was doing on great gig of the sky but like david's the singer and then all of a sudden now roger's the singer who is who doesn't have an amazing voice but it is distinct right and it also, it, it when you, when you hear it on the radio, because I heard it the other day in in preparation for this, it sounds weird to me now. Come by itself, like it really does need to go with everything else, with with what comes before it. And much like "Speak to Me," "Breathe," "Brain Damage," "Eclipse" was always one song to me. That makes sense. Yeah, it it, it, it makes it easier to take. 
I yeah. feel like, uh, brain damage, uh, because it, it is kind of, I mean, it's, it's obviously about Sid mm-hmm. and was this Roger worrying about his, you know, worrying about himself going crazy? Is it just kind of a, a statement on mental health? Is it, yeah, well, we used to have this guy and he was great and now he's gone, whatever. Yeah. I don't yeah, know. And, and there, there's interesting, there's interesting concepts in here about, you know, like having brain surgery and, you know, doing things to, to correct the problem and do any of those things actually help, you know, there's someone in my head, but it's not me. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. this it's a very, very, we don't really talk about this, but in society, but it, it's very, I can imagine it's very painful to go through as an individual, but also as somebody who is associated with this person, you know, it's, it's your, it, it, parent or child or friend or something like that with you know, what is happening to this person they're slipping away they're becoming a different person altogether right right we're losing this person and correct if, if it's about stuff that makes you go crazy you know aging and, and working yourself to the bone can can drive you mad can can make you go nuts chasing after money mm-hmm. you know can can make you go nuts make you do things that you don't want to you know Trying to decide, do I get the red car? Do I get the blue car? Do I get the green car? Mm-hmm. You think this is, oh, this is fun, but really it's kind of driving you nuts for, for no reason kind of thing. <laughs> you know. And so it's like there, there is kind of this theme. It's a little loose in some parts, but this theme kind of bringing it together. And when he sings the lunatic is in my head and you hear the kind of maniacal yeah, oh, laughter – it's a little scary, you know. Yeah. It's it's definitely off-putting when you're younger and you're not really sure what all that means. The lunatic is in my head. <laughs> the lunatic is in my head. You raise the blade. You make the change. You rearrange me till I'm sane. And, so, and, then, and maybe, maybe you think to yourself, have I heard that laughing somewhere in my own head? Uh-oh, what's going on? And obviously this is where the title of the album comes from. And I got to say, I, I kind of like that. There's nothing wrong with having a title track that they sing the song and the name of the song or the chorus is the title of the album. Mm-hmm. Lots of people do that. There's, there's nothing wrong with it, but I do think there's something kind of cool about it that it's a line in the song, but it's not the name of the song because, you know, when the band you're in starts playing different tunes, I'll see you on the dark side of the moon. You know, when, when your band leaves you behind and you go nuts, that's kind of the thing there. And, and, and it's, I was thinking about that too, because I understand what he's doing there, but I never, listening to it as a younger person, I never took it that way. Right, and, and because I didn't really understand what he didn't was get saying, it. yeah. But I just like that. I like that concept of when things don't go, you know, things aren't always going to go your way, and sometimes you have to divorce yourself from situations. And I just like that. You know, I'll see you. Okay, this isn't working out. I'll see you on the dark side of the moon. I'm out. I'll, yeah, I can't. I can't do this anymore. Yeah, and there just, is that, that just kind of that cutting ties and and doing something that is for yourself. Yeah, you know, and. Well, they kind of reprised it again, right? Like uh, uh, with uh, On One Slip has the line of momentary lapse of reason. They didn't name the album One Slip. They didn't right. name it Learning to Fly. They named it Momentary Lapse of Reason, which is a cool line. Mm-hmm. 
but it's yeah. kind of buried in the record, you know, for those who aren't as familiar. Yeah, it's uh, it's an iconic tune. Roger's voice is not incredible, but it's... But it, wor- uh, it works for the it song. Works. It works yeah. for the song, yeah. Don't need David to sing this one. And then the last one, Eclipse. Mm-hmm. A lot of people could have sung this song. Roger wrote it, of course. To me, this is by design the last song on the record. Okay. You know, it's like sometimes yeah. it's a throwaway, sometimes it's a fade but mm-hmm. this seems to me it wraps it up and it kind of builds to a conclusion here. That that's what the song is for, in my opinion. And I would I would agree with you too. And if you if you listen to the end, there's the heartbeat on the way out, which was the heartbeat on the way in mm-hmm. to speak to me. And so it ties it all together. And and just that the the crescendo at the end, and he says, you know, and the sun is eclipsed by the moon, and then boom, that's it. And then you know, you kind of think, okay, scene, that's the end of this thing. That's right. Yeah. That's exactly right, you know, and it's it's the way. And sometimes radio stations here in America would play both of them, or they mm. might even play the sweet "Any Color You Like" brain damage eclipse. But a lot of times they would play both. You you would because it's only about two minutes long. You usually wouldn't just play eclipse. I don't think that I've ever heard it by itself. Yeah, you, you would play at least the two of them together. So sometimes you hear "Any Color You Like" and brain damage. Sometimes you hear brain damage and eclipse. I don't know if I ever heard all three of them together, unless they were just playing the whole damn thing. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's a kind of a good way to wrap the album. Now, mm-hmm. this is some personal notes here. All right. Everyone knows, or at least Pink Floyd fans know, when they released their live album Pulse on the back of the Division Bell tour, Pulse featured them playing The Dark Side of the Moon in its entirety in order. Okay. Now, that's become a pretty popular concept. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of bands will do that. They'll take one of their most popular albums and play it in its entirety front to back. I've seen Rush do it with Moving Pictures. I've seen The Cult do it with Electric. Uh, I've, I've seen a lot of bands do that over the years. Some critics think that sucks or is cheesy. I think it's pretty cool because this is the way you've listened to these songs for decades, right? And it's it's cool right. to hear them perform that way. Mm-hmm. To the best of my knowledge, that's the first time I'd ever... I ever that, that anybody had ever done that. Okay, I'm sure there were some people who had done it before, and obviously they did it. They ran through it in 1972 before it was even recorded. So I don't think it's they were the first people to ever do it. But in my world, that's the first time I ever really saw that happen. Now I was fortunate enough to see Pink Floyd on that tour, on the Division Bell tour, at the Big Sombrero in Tampa. Mm-hmm. Okay. They were not doing that at that point of the tour. They oh, didn't do that ooh. till later. Yeah, I, I don't no. know if they didn't do it till they went to Europe or something like that. But they weren't doing that at that point. Now, they were doing a lot of songs from Dark Side of the Moon, as mm. you would expect. Right. So about halfway through, and it's a great set list. You know, the, they, they, they opened with Astronomy Domine. And they did a lot of songs from those two albums, Momentary Lapse and Division Bell. Mm. Then they did one of these days in Shine On, You Crazy Diamond. Okay, so they do Breathe 
time and then a breathe reprise. Squeeze high hopes in there, then they do great gig in the sky. And then later they do uh, us and them and money. So, you know, they, they always, they were always going to do some of these songs live. Uh, and I guess they just at some point said, yeah, let's do the whole thing. And then it was captured on Pulse. And I had, as you will recall, a Laserdisc player. I had the Pulse video on Laserdisc mm-hmm. <laughs> later in the 90s. And I watched it into the 2000s. Don't have the Laserdisc player anymore, but I still have the disc. Uh, so if anyone knows a good deal on a Laserdisc player, uh, <laughs> shoot it to me. I, was it part of the latter years? I don't know if it was or not, because I was so I concerned know. about yeah, because I got that big box set, but I was so concerned about seeing Delicate Sound of Thunder live. I don't even know if I paid attention to see if Pulse <laughs> was in there or not. Well, yeah, now you can and, go back and look. I know, I know. And I'll tell you, last fall, when I had just moved to Amsterdam and figured I'd be there two or three years, I bought tickets to see Roger Waters at the Ziggo Dome because he has announced this is his kind of farewell tour. It's like, okay, mm-hmm. this is it. He's 79. It's time to get off the road. I've seen him twice. I saw him do The Wall in its entirety. And then I saw him do, he made a new record. And so he went out and just did hits with an incredible band and incredible light show and, and, and props and all this. It was amazing. It, it's really a spectacle. It really is. But I'm not living in Amsterdam anymore, so I'm going to sell the tickets. And honestly, since his stance on the war in Ukraine, yeah, I don't want to see that son of a bitch anyway, to be yeah. honest with you. Yeah, he he's really it, to me the, especially the stuff recently. He's really kind of tarnished him. I always love I always love Pink Floyd. I always love especially, you know, the David Gilmore delicate uh, sounds, momentary laps and and this record is great, but yeah, it, he's really not made a whole lot of friends with that rhetoric of late. No, and he he went and spoke to the UN Security Council on behalf of Russia. I got two words for you, Rod. <laughs> And they're not Merry Christmas. No, Jesus <laughs> Christ, you know. And, and here's the thing. So as soon as the war in Ukraine, in Ukraine broke out, Pink Floyd, as it was, got back together, you know. Right. David, Nick, Guy Pratt, uh, another gentleman whose name is escaping me, who, who did the keyboards. And then they had a Ukrainian kind of rapper come in. Now, it's not very Pink Floyd. It's not something that fits in with their catalog and not something you listen to. But the point is, it's raising money. And when I saw Nick Mason's Saucer Full of Secrets in Royal Albert Hall last mm-hmm. spring, Guy got on the mic to say, you know, got to give all due respect to Nick for saying, look, if we do this and we put the Pink Floyd name on it, it's going to sell. The money can go to help people in Ukraine and it will create awareness. You know, mm-hmm. like we could just put out Nick Saucer Full of Secrets. It won't do as well. But if we put David on it and put the Pink Floyd name on it, because Pink Floyd was done. They were never going to record again, right. certainly weren't going to tour. But they did this to benefit people. And then Roger comes out and does the opposite. Now, to give fair time, mm-hmm. when Roger says that the news we get is not 100% the actual news, I know you're right, Roger. Okay, The stuff is scrubbed. And like when we go to Afghanistan and on our TVs, they show us bombing military stuff and taking out guns and weapons. We're not seeing where we accidentally bomb people's homes and we kill children and stuff like that. That might get covered on Al Jazeera, but Mm -hmm. you don't see it on Western media. You just don't. They block that stuff out. So I understand that a lot of stuff is scrubbed. But fuck you for fighting with the Russians. Are you kidding me? With Vladimir Putin? 
what the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> all they do is lie. Okay, that's all they do. We have some truth in what we say. Mm-hmm. Their whole system is built on stealing shit. Like their banking system. They said, well, it's mafia. No, it's not mafia. It's just the way it is. Yeah. <laughs> Ever since communism, it's just stealing shit. They're just all a bunch of thugs and criminals. Now, not every member of Russian society, not all Russians are bad right. people. I know that. But the people in charge, yeah, that's the only way you get in charge is by murdering people, robbing them, and threatening that kind of stuff. It's the way it's always been. And that's exactly who Vladimir Putin is. It, and you're on his side, mm-hmm. it's nuts. And like when he came out against Alan Parsons for playing Israel, he's branded as an anti-Semite because he doesn't like Israel because that land was taken from the Palestinians. Mm-hmm. And so he's like, it's just like the Nazis. They took the Jews' land and property, and the Jews are now taking the Palestinians' property. I'm like, okay, it's not quite that black and white <laughs> I don't know. I mean, to an Israeli, to a Jewish person, you can't be pro-Palestinian without being anti-Semitic. Right. I, I don't know if that's true or not. I, I don't really have a dog in the fight. Seems like the Palestinians should have some of their own land, but I don't want to wade too deep in those waters because, you know, I, I don't know every little piece of it. And I'm not an anti-Semitic. So I, I don't get in that. But I mean, he, he got in, in Alan Parsons' face, do not play Israel, you know, don't do that kind of stuff. And there was that Twitter spat where Polly, David's wife, really got up in Roger's face. And yeah. he was like, you're anti-Semitic, you're a son of a bitch. You know, she, was, she was all this. And David's like, yep, all been proven, proven true. And then you, yeah. you texted me, he's like, so I guess that Pink Floyd reunion is out the door. I'm like, that was never going to happen anyway. <laughs> Well, it, well, wasn't there when because uh, when he when Waters did the Wall by himself, there were a couple of shows that Gilmore showed up to and played. This this was years ago, but there was always kind of that well, maybe they will, you know. No, time goes by now, forget it. No way, no. David, when they did G eight, you could see David was. I was like, come on, come on, put your arm around me. David's like, <laughs> all right, fine. And then I, I saw you know something like they happened to be in the same studio or in the same place one day. And Roger's putting his arm around David's, like, yeah, yeah, how's it going? David's just looking back at him like, I still don't like you, you know, kind of thing. You can just see that on his face. Like, he's smiling, but it's that smile like, I that really wish like- I was anywhere else right now. You know, so if anybody wants my tickets to the Ziggo Dome on April 4th in Amsterdam, let me know, because I'm going to sell those things. I am not going to that. But I would go see David Gilmore in a heartbeat, and I don't mm-hmm. know if that's going to happen. David's also about that same age, he doesn't need money. And I don't think he needs the adulation anymore. And, you know, I know Phil Manzanera, who's a great musician, who's toured with him a lot, could still tour with him. But without Rick Wright, I don't know. I don't know if he, and if he comes to the States, I'll definitely see him. I think he would prefer to stay in Europe and play like those old Roman amphitheaters and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. We'll see. But I mean, if Pink Floyd's done, that's fine with me. I would love to see David Gilmore again. But this album, look, man, sold 45 or 50 million copies, something like that. I mean, they say one in 14 people in the UK has one, Mm -hmm. which is like 5 million. Pretty impressive. But if one in 14 people in America have it, that's like 24 million copies, man. That's unbelievable. And that's that's why they had to have that, where at that factory working 24 hours a day to get (laughs) those copies. So let me ask you this question. We, if we 
said on an earlier episode that Marvin Gaye's What's Going On is the number one record in all of history. Mm. This has got to be number two. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, you, you rank things and that causes controversy. And then people say, no, it's not that. It's something else. It, it's just because of the reach of this thing. You know, you, you, it's yeah. hard to deny. I mean, what's going on is poignant and important mm-hmm. uh, and reflected what's going on in society. This does, too, kind of from a very different perspective. But when you look at the certifications, double platinum in Argentina, mm-hmm. 14 times platinum in Australia, that means it sold a million, a million records when there were only 20 million people you know, living there. Was it double diamond in Canada? Holy shit, you know. <laughs> uh, you know, double platinum in Germany, platinum in France, platinum in Belgium, six times platinum in Italy, 16 times platinum in New Zealand. Now, that's only a quarter of a million sold, but still, that it's, it's like one in every 15 people has one, you know. Platinum in Poland, who the fuck goes platinum in Poland, you know? I mean, 15 times platinum in, in the UK, 15 times platinum in the US, and they have stopped basically counting it because... <laughs> They don't want the tax man to know how many they sold. You know, it's <laughs> it's at least forty five million. I bet it's between fifty and sixty. And you know, top one, number one, or number five, top five, all of the world. South Korea got into the top ten. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's it's crazy. The reach of this thing is unbelievable. And like we said, from seventy three to eighty eight, it never left the Billboard top two hundred. And then when it did, it went straight back in. And you know, it has been. For like a thousand weeks, including yeah. like remasters and reissues, a thousand weeks in the Billboard Top 200, you'll never see anything close to this ever again. Right. And and the, the fact that you can, it, it basically is one or maybe two pieces in this whole thing. It, there are stuff that you may not love, but mm-hmm. there's nothing that falls flat. Everything fits together. It's a theme. It kind of was the blueprint for a lot of stuff to come after it. True. And all of the everybody's firing on, on all cylinders on this record. All the musicians, all the backup singers, the the lyrics are on point, the music is on point. It's I think Nick Mason said it was the first time they ever felt confident enough to print the lyrics on the liner notes because mm, they were they were so impressed with with what he had come up with. Well, and it would kind of start to mark the end, the beginning of the end of Pink Floyd, because when you have all this success, mm-hmm. suddenly you're a little fat and happy and you get to just listen to the people who tell you that you're awesome, you know? Right. And while they did, it was still fairly collaborative on Wish You Were Here, Roger was kind of elbowing his way to the front a little bit more, right? And then Animals, which is based on Animal Farm, you know, very much about communism and, and Russia and that kind of thing. Obviously, that's another concept that he was in charge of. The wall is completely his baby. Mm-hmm. And he obviously, when he left after the final cut, which is not good. <laughs> I know some people said, oh, well, will you review final cut? It's turning 40. The answer is I don't think so, guys, because that's just not my favorite. And I remember watching the video for it on MTV when I was a little kid. I was like, oh, yeah. I'm going to watch this. I'm like, what the hell is this? This music isn't good. And why is the guy like in the shadows talking into a microphone? I don't get it. When he left and then Pink Floyd decided to go on without him, he sued the shit out of him and they sued him. And there was all this thing and momentary lapse almost didn't come out. Then eventually he realized he was in the wrong. They were allowed to continue without him. But he sued them for the rights that he was the only one who could perform the live, the wall. 
in its entirety. He's the okay. only one that could do it. And they're like, fine, we don't want to do that anyway. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll play bits of it, but we don't want to do that. Interesting that Jeff Tate of Queensryche also sued them. He's the only one who could do Operation Mind Crime live in its entirety because that was kind of his bait. Okay. And, okay. and our buddies on Album View Crew, Tom, Zeus, and Sonny, did Operation Mind Crime on one of their episodes recently, and they talked about that. So that's yeah, kind that's of a, interesting. That's a band that got real ugly in a hurry, too. Oof. oof, oof yeah, oof. I know. That's, that's a whole other story. But listen to the Album Review Crew on Shout It Out Loudcast okay. to learn more about that. But yeah, so, so Roger owns that. And of course, he had the big thing at the Berlin Wall after it fell that had like Paul Carrick on it and a lot yeah. of great musicians. And a couple of those kind of became hits in 1990, especially uh, Hey You did well from that. But yeah, it's it's it, it's an amazing statement. It's an amazing record. It sold incredibly well, <laughs> but it, it sparked a change and a little bit of a riff that mm-hmm. uh, that ended up breaking the band. Yeah, and and it's it, there was a there was a I think it might have even been from Waters saying they could have just walked away after this record, just dropped the mic and said that's it for. From yeah. Pink Floyd, and it would have been interesting had the had the wall not come out. What people would have thought of that? Because you're right. Once the wall showed up, you knew that was Roger Waters. He was in control. This was no longer really a collaborative band. It was one guy telling everybody else what to do. And now Roger has apparently reworked the uh, Dark Side of the Moon, kind of on his own. I think he's kind of brought it down, made it a little more spare, done maybe more acoustic stuff on there, and. He's like to kind of bring out the tracks. I, I think he just wants to, he wants more credit. He wants more attention. He's doing this tour, his farewell mm-hmm. tour. So he's going to break them down and maybe do them a little bit differently. I'm a little curious, but do we need it reworked? It's fine the way it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And back to, do you even want to really support him at this point in time? No, because his tickets are expensive, man. And I've bought his records from Pink Floyd. I bought at least one of his solo records so he doesn't need my money anymore. I'm selling the Ziggo Dome tickets. All the best to you, Rob. <laughs> well, that is the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock Podcast, episode number 119, folks, on Pink Floyd's 1973 classic, the Dark Side of the Moon, one of the biggest selling albums of all time, an iconic album that really experimented with soundscapes and really pushed the band and progressive rock and rock music in new directions, hit new heights that we haven't really seen since in some ways. Some might say that The Wall was an even bigger triumph, but it was just less collaborative. That was basically all Roger Waters, plus David Gilmore's contribution on Uncomfortably Numb. But you can't deny the selling power over 50 million copies sold worldwide. And songs like Time and Money and Us and Them and Brain Damage, songs that have just been on classic rock, have been in our ears and our brains for 50 years now. Don't know a world without Dark Side of the Moon, and I don't think that we ever will. And as usual, folks, we want to know, do we get something right? Do we get something wrong? Do we miss the point? Do we leave out your favorite part? You've got to let us know. You email us, UglyAmericanWerewolf at gmail.com. You can also tweet us or DM us at 
ugly underscore werewolf or at actionjack72. We're on Instagram. We're on YouTube. We might be on Facebook. I'm not really sure. And we want you to download and subscribe wherever you get your podcast, be it Apple, be it iTunes, Spotify, Good Pods, Podbean, wherever you do it. And if you're thinking about it, guys, hey, put out a positive review of the show. It just helps us find more rock fans like you and helps us grow the show. Thanks, as always, to Pantheon Pods, of which we are a proud member. You can go to www.pantheonpodcast.com to learn more about all the other great shows. We also want to thank our incredible sponsor, RareVinyl.com. Go to RareVinyl.com right now. Use the code PODCAST. Save 10%. They have an amazing collection of Pink Floyd stuff. Some Dark Side of the Moon, but all sorts of great stuff from over the years. Definitely check it out. Save some money there. Add some killer stuff to your collection. Don't even know what we're doing next week, folks. But that just means you're going to have to tune in and find out. So once again, please subscribe. Please download, and to all of you rock and rollers all around the world, be cool and stay safe. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com. Code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.